Stephanie, I have a PSA for you. Mm-hmm. Score is a measure of the number of something, and it is equal to the number 20. Oh, so would you say that one score months ago... We started Get Lit Podcast. Stephanie, I would exactly say that. It's like you read my mind. Welcome back to Get Lit, the literary podcast where we discuss famous works of literature and the authors who wrote them. Um, That cheesy introduction was brought to you by the mind of John. Yes. I um, can't claim credit, I guess. Oh, well. (laughs) Um, Full disclosure, our second take. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we actually had to do that twice, and it still sucked. But that's okay. We'll keep it here. Thanks, Stephanie. Um, yes, I'm your host, Steph Spars, and here with um, you can have your you can be a co-host again. Yes, permanently. No, for this week. Though. Okay, I'll take okay. it, John Stricker. Um, and we're here this week to talk about uh, one of the more I feel like I say this every time we do a female author, incredible woman authors. Um, I guess, of all American history, in my opinion. But that's just because there's so many incredible female authors. Right, that don't get enough coverage. Yes. Just saying. Um, Zora Neale Hurston. Ooh, Zora. Um, So I... First, though, we have a couple quick, like, announcements. Um... Our Get Lit Live episode is next week. We're so excited for it. Um, And only a little nervous. Uh, yeah, I'm just not thinking about it. Very good. Don't. So we are going to be inviting an audience to come, um, a very nice, sensitive audience, including both of our parents. We um, call them super fans to not sound as sad. Yep. <laughs> so our super fans are coming, and um, we're going to record a special episode with um, authors that they actually chose. So... We'll announce a little bit more about that later, but just up and coming, um, if you're enjoying this and you think you would like to attend a Get Lit Live for whatever reason, um, feel free to reach out to us and we'll Get do... Get Lit is awesome. Yeah, we'll do another one. Yeah. And we'll invite more people. More people. Um, so that's coming up. And so last week when we were talking, um, we did Edna St. Vincent Millay. And there were two sort of facts, tidbits of information where I was like, oh, God, I didn't look that up. Hang on really quick. So I did the details and the research, and we went down a rabbit hole. So I'm going to try to make this as concise as possible. But the first fact that I couldn't remember was about uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay's uncle, the one that she was named after the hospital that treated him. And last week, I couldn't remember why he was in the hospital in the first place. So I looked it up. Went back to our girl, um, Nancy Milford, and her biography of Edna St. Vincent Millay. And um, as it turns out, Edna's uncle was working on a cargo ship, and he, quote, unquote, caught a fever. He was actually drunk and would admit that later, but, like, initially he was like, I got sick. Um, And he got stuck in the hull of the the ship for 11 days. (gasps) I don't (laughs) want... No one knew. No one knew. No one got it. So he was discovered, and he was unconscious, and rushed to the hospital, and treated there, and lived. And so that sort of miraculous situation was why the hospital was so significant to the family. Moral of the story, don't get drunk on a cargo ship. Right. And, well, I feel like it's don't get stuck in a hull for 11 days. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So that was the first one. The second one is a little bit more detailed. And um, I also realized that I hadn't talked about JSTOR, which is, 
I can't even believe I haven't. It is Stephanie's obsession. It's my favorite search engine of all time. It's an academic search engine um, with articles about all kinds of humanities subjects and other things, but I mostly use it for humanities type work. Um, and oh my goodness, it's just incredible. I have I heart JSTOR memes. We'll stick those up. So feel free to put them wherever I made them because um, I loved it so much. So I use JSTOR to track down some information about graduation exercises. Mm. Edna had that like weird poetry thing where she rewrote that guy's poem for their ghost poem, right? Yes. So um, I went back and looked up because I was like, oh, I don't really know much about the history of that. And then here's the rabbit hole. So um, I found out several facts, and I found this information in the Commencement Activities and Practices in Wisconsin High Schools, that's the article title, published in the School Review Journal in 1934. Of course. So I went way back. (laughs) Um, And it turns out, based on their data and statistics, um, that the senior class play was actually the most popular of the graduation functions. Oh. Um, basically, there were lots of like celebrations around graduation, um, one of which was a class poem. But when I was looking at that, um, by 1934, only about 49% of high schools would do a class poem mm. to celebrate the commencement. However, at the same time, 1934, 90% of high schools were doing senior class plays. Whoa. Um, A lot more, actually, than prom. So at this point, only about 68% of high schools were doing prom, but almost all of them were doing senior class plays. I was like, are you kidding? That's so cool. Imagine a class play being as ubiquitous as prom. It's just like everyone does it. Like, oh, you you weren't in your senior class? Yeah. You what? didn't do costumes, nothing? Who did you go with to see your senior class play? No, did you well, dress you'd up? be in it. Oh, or like oh, you would, I would participate. Oh, the whole like senior a, class? Yeah, that was the point. Oh. Right. It was. It's treated as like a big fundraiser for the school. Oh. So, um, but still about 49% would do a class poem along with, I found out, other celebratory um, activities included class songs, class histories, a class prophecy, and a class will. What is it? I have major questions on the last two items, Stephanie. So do I, and I feel like I need to do more research than the stuff that I did, because I couldn't. it didn't explain what a class prophecy or a class will was. I have a feeling the prophecy was like, predict, like predictive. Oh, like superlatives, like, but uh, with a spin? I feel like, like most it's like, likely to in su- the future, oh. yeah, maybe something like that. But like, our class will contribute, I don't know. Um, and I have no idea what a class will is. So these were all presented during a special day of activities before the official graduation ceremony. Um, so that was the information that I found out and learned. Um, but I did, and I wanted to share this one other fact really quick. I know this is kind of a long introduction, but I think it's worth it because it's really interesting. Fascinating. Um, so we're talking just post one room schoolhouses, right? So education in the United States, um, you know, pretty much prior to the, mid 1800s I would say was pretty one room schoolhousey very individual you know not much unity across the United States because it was still kind of being built um so they start shifting over to a public school system and the public school system often used to require admission tests 
Um, so as they were sort of transferring things and I pulled some of the questions because I was just like in awe that these were the things that were asked, but more so that many people could do, right? Because lots of people went to public school. Right. So it's not like this was, oh, get into college. This was like, get into elementary school, maybe like a little later, but... Anyway, um, they wanted to um, illustrate the level of education that was needed to move forward in their new system. So one of the questions was, <laughs> give a brief account of the colleges, printing, and religion in the colonies prior to the American Revolution. Wait. Go. <laughs> Wait, say that again? Give a brief account of the colleges, printing, and religion in the colonies prior to the American Revolution. This actually, I feel like I could talk about printing and religion, actually. That's about it. Here's a math one, though, that you could do, and I probably can't. Um, Find the interest on an 8% note for $900 running two years, two months, six days. How often is it compounding? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) That makes a big difference. See, and I would be like, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> but I'll write you an essay about the college's printing and religion of the colonies. Right. I I think on the first one, I'd be able to briefly talk about it, but only because I saw Hamilton. Oh, I thought you were going to say only because of what I've taught you in Gitlet. But that's fine, too. <laughs> also that. All right. <laughs> Great. So um, that's, that's where we're at. So if you guys have any more questions about the things that we research, obviously, I'm happy to take a productive procrastination tangent, tangent yeah. um, and do some research myself on that. So feel free to reach out to us with some questions. Um, that can be a fun way to get, to get some more folks involved. So thank you for um, the people who pointed those things out and asked for elaboration, because those are the answers. So um, with that being said, let's turn now in our textbooks class to Zora Neale Hurston. Zora was born in Notasulga, Alabama on January 15, 1891, making her a Capricorn. She's technically a cusp as well. Um, She was the sixth of eight children (laughs) born to John Hurston and Lucy Ann Hurston. One of the things that really impacted her writing, her work, and her influence growing up was that all four of her grandparents were actually born into slavery. Um, Her father was a preacher, and her mom was a school teacher. Uh, And when she was very young, um, like toddler age, her family relocates to Eatonville, Florida, which is actually a black-established town very unusual, but a town established by African-American folks who were granted after slavery was abolished, um, rights to land and that kind of thing. So they moved down um, to Eatonville and this this town was established in 1887. Um, it's actually close to Orlando. And um, Hurston describes it in her autobiography as a city of five lakes, three croquet courts, 300 brown skins, 300 good swimmers, plenty of guavas, two schools, and no jailhouse. Wow. 
And I just think that's like a really beautiful description of the culture that she grew up in um, because she actually grew up with evidence of black excellence all around her. Um, Her father actually becomes one of the town's first mayors and serves for three terms. But, um, you know, shops were owned by black folks and um, the town was run by black leaders. And so Zora grew up in this community. Tight-knit, too, like 300. Tight-knit community that was... um, a space where what I imagine is what white people feel like in the United States, right? Depending on where you grow up, of course, but right. she wasn't, you know, a minority, quote unquote. She wasn't marked. Right. She got to grow up sort of free from the experiences that so many people of color in the United States today have to struggle through. Yeah. And I think that's really amazing. Um, so she grows up in this kind of community. Her father was pretty stern, um, but her mom was the one who encouraged her. Um, and she has this great quote that her mom used to say to her. She encouraged Zora and her siblings um, to jump at the sun. And the explanation that Zora provided was that, you know, we might not land on the sun, but at least we would get off the ground. And so I, I really like that quote um, because yeah. I think it provides a really cool look into the risk-taking behaviors of achieving dreams and going after goals without sort of being inhibited by success, right? The idea that even if you try for this thing and you don't get it, there's some success in that because you've done it. Yeah, there's there's some worth in, in going after the aim, even if you don't make it in the end. Right. So granted, that has its caveats, but as an idea, especially for a young child, I think that's beautifully inspirational. Um, So these would carry throughout Zora's childhood, um, which really kind of actually ends when her mom dies in 1904, and Zora is only 13 at the time. Mm -hmm. So um, she moves to Jacksonville and lives with her sister Sarah and her brother Robert, who are older than she is, and her dad remarries, um, but Zora doesn't get along with his new wife very well, but she's again living in Jacksonville, and her father pays for her to go to boarding school, but eventually stops paying and that stops her formal education. Whoa. Um, so after that, Zora goes right into the workforce. Um, she tries to do a bunch of different like odd jobs. She's a maid for a while. She joins a Gilbert and Sullivan traveling troupe, which ignites her love of opera or well of theater kind of in general. Um, that carries through the rest of her life as well. But I thought that was really neat. Um, and then in 1917, she winds up in Baltimore, having done this tour. And she's 26 years old, but hasn't finished high school at this point. And um, in order, this is very cool. And again, the idea that education um, is a right, in my opinion, not a privilege. Uh, In order to qualify for free public school, she needed to be a teenager, right? She's 26 years old. She wants to finish high school, but she can't get into the education system because she's 26. So she lies and says she's 16, not 26, and says that the year of her birth is 1901. And this actually sticks around for the rest of her life. People think, and she tells people, that she's 10 years younger than she actually is. And gets away with it. And gets away with it. Hurston enrolls in Morgan Academy and completes her high school studies and then goes on to attend Howard University, which is uh, an HBCU, historically black college and university, um, and she earns her associate's degree there. 
And because of her active role as a student, she's in student government, and she also helps co-found the newspaper, The Hilltop. Uh, And then in 1925, she receives a scholarship to study at Barnard College in New York. And she graduates three years later with her BA in anthropology. And this will set the groundwork for a lot of what she's known as, which is a collector of folklore and stories and sort of social studies of the African diaspora um, and sort of the documentation of African-American history in the U.S. Can I make a quick parallel? Yes. What other author had... A degree in sociology, oh, in anthropology. Vonnegut. I think that it is a pathway towards becoming an author to study, like, human civilization. How can you mm-hmm. not be interested in the stories that make us human uh, when you study anthropology? Mm-hmm. That's kind of, I think, what constructs our narrative. Like, if we didn't have stories behind the things that we discover, would they be worth telling? I like that. Yeah. Somebody put that on a t-shirt. Gitlet, you heard it here first. Okay. Um, <laughs> copyright. Okay, so um, she becomes the school's first African-American graduate, which is really amazing. Um, wow. She devotes the next four years to her um, different studies of histories, of studying people, of ethnography. Um, she goes to Florida, Alabama, Louisiana, and the Bahamas, and she collects folk tales, songs, games, prayers, sermons, all different kinds of things that make a culture what it is um, from the people in these areas. And she bounces back and forth between all of these places and New York, which is where she's living. And at this time, we're hitting the 1930s, which is part of the Harlem Renaissance. And she befriends other writers. She gets to know Langston Hughes, um, County Cullen, and Ethel Waters, who's a singer and actress, not a writer. But her apartment, according to a lot of people, was a really popular spot for social gatherings. So she's really at the hub of this amazing explosion of black culture in America. Like and the black salon of the yes, like, Harlem Renaissance. Absolutely. It basically is 100% that. Um, she was known as being the life of a party she was she didn't really drink but she was witty she was charming she was charismatic um and that caught the attention of herbert sheen and in 1927 they get married uh he's a jazz musician and former teacher um and he later becomes a physician natural progression they are only married however for like four or five years and they get divorced in 1931 um and then in 1930 she writes Mulebone, which is a play, actually, in collaboration with Langston Hughes. So that's, I haven't read that work, but after doing this research, I was like, great, ordering this on Amazon, <laughs> 12 hours, same day delivery. Uh, in 1935, she's published a bunch of short stories and articles and her first novel, which is called Jonah's Gourd Vine, actually inspired by her dad. And she also publishes a very, very well-received collection of Black Southern folklore called Mules and Men. Um, This is her best-selling work during her lifetime, but at the same time only earns her about $943, like the royalties. Whoa. So you can really see this incredibly important, incredibly influential Black woman in America is not getting paid correctly. She's undervalued, underappreciated. She's not getting what she rightfully deserves. Mm. That actually ends up being her situation towards the end of her life as well. But her bestseller got her less than $1,000. Wow. Um, 
So another reason why I'm really happy to be bringing her up and get lit, um, you know, not that our audience is extensive, but hopefully when you guys hear about her story, you're encouraged to go out and learn more about her legacy. So in 1939, she's working in Florida and she marries Albert Prince. Um, this marriage only lasts seven months, but they actually don't get divorced until 1943. So there's, there's, they're separated, but they don't get officially annulled until later. The next year, um, she marries James Howell Pitts from Cleveland, and Wait. that marriage also lasts less than a year. Hold on. A year after the annulment or a year after? Were these marriages running concurrently? No. <laughs> in 19... So okay. she would have gotten married in 1940. Okay. Understood. Okay. Great. So those were kind of these relationships in her life, um, but I think very should play like fourth fiddle to her amazing career, um, which really takes off in the late 1930s and early 40s. She publishes Their Eyes Were Watching God, which I think is what most people know her for writing in 1937. And she breaks literary norms by focusing on black women. Right. No one is writing books from the perspective of a black woman. And she actually gets a lot of criticism for it from black male writers because um, this story is full of optimism and this one woman's kind of hope and experiences. And so a lot of black authors criticized it. Black male authors, I should say, criticized it when it first came out because they were like, you're ignoring all of the deeply entrenched racial divides that still are existing, um, which I think is really kind of interesting. Yeah. And, you know, shows, I think, the importance of raising up women's voices. Um, she writes Tell My Horse, which is a study of Caribbean voodoo practices in 1938, 1939, a novel, Moses, Man of the Mountain. And then she publishes her autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road, in 1942. I like so this period of like six years, she's writing novels. She's writing like historical book. She's writing all kinds of things like that, which I think is incredible. The amount of output she had in a very short amount of time. Um, in 1934 as well, she establishes a school of dramatic arts at, um, what is it? Bethan Cookman College. And she works as a drama teacher at the North Carolina College for Negroes at Durham. Um, so she's not only writing and researching and studying, she's also teaching at the same time. Busy woman. I know. It's like what I wish I was doing. Um, Uh, I guess I kind of, you are doing that just at a very small scale. No. (laughs) Um, she, uh, eventually, um, kind of falls out of these practices and stuff as she's getting older and she becomes a maid during the 1950s to support herself, but really struggles her health um, and her financial holdings in the last years of her life. So she falls into poverty um, and eventually enters the St. Lucie County Welfare Home in Florida because she can't take care of herself. She gets really sick, but she doesn't have enough money to support herself or care. Mm -hmm. Um, And she dies of heart disease on January 28th, 1960. Um, so there's a remarkable story, again, about her legacy. At first, she winds up in a, in, um, a cemetery. In, it's called the Garden of Heavenly Rest in Fort, Pre- in Fort Pierce, excuse oh. me, Florida. And initially, her remains are placed in an unmarked grave. And then in 1972, Alice Walker, the author, um, who's really inspired by um, Hurston's work, finds her grave and then helps raise the money to create a marker. So today, because of Alice Walker, you can go down and see her grave. 
down there. Nice. Which I think is amazing. So um, I know going into this, you didn't know very much about Hurston. um, And I didn't know as much either. But I just like, as I was reading, the more I was reading and discovering about her, the more I was like, cool, I'm going to order her complete works right now. For Um, sure. I've read pieces, but I've never gotten a chance to read the whole of her work. Just hearing the timeline and the the work pieces like that she wrote, it's... Mm -hmm energy and just you know like you said an incredible amount of output Mm -hmm. right it's it's life and it's celebration of her culture and her history and her family Um, and so her work still stands today lots of schools um, fortunately still read her work um, and discuss her work and Hopefully that expands. Uh, I would really like to take a look at some of her nonfiction writing, too. My sophomore class this year um, is encouraged to focus on nonfiction writing because that's a lot of what we see on the SAT. And so I'm wondering if maybe there's some space for me to find some of her excerpts that I could bring into class. From the Um, voodoo book. I could do the voodoo book, um, but I really like the idea of the folktales. I think those are interesting. Uh, I really like reading. I have lots of folktale collections on my bookshelves, uh, but I don't have hers yet. So my birthday is coming up. (laughs) Duly noted, Stephanie. Just saying. (laughs) Get me her book. Um, Wonderful. So, yeah, folks, please, I encourage you. Um, A lot of the time on GitLit, we uncover authors and we talk about authors that you guys know, right? We talk about Fitzgerald and Salinger and Vonnegut and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But I think an equally important part of what we do and what I want to keep doing as we go forth with this podcast is bringing to light authors whose reputations maybe aren't as well known. But Um, should be. People who need to be studied, absolutely, and and have their legacies respected. So um, hopefully this episode, maybe Zora was a name that you'd heard before, but didn't know much about. So hopefully you know a little bit more about her now um, and can pay it forward and and pass some of her passion and legacy along with you to somebody else. So that would be, I guess, this this week's takeaway Um, is jump for the sun. Jump for the sun. Yeah. Great. So thank you for listening and uh, for contributing and supporting this community as you have in such an excellent and amazing and wonderful way. Uh, We would love if you would continue to do that and pass it along a little bit. We're happy to send stickers to folks if they really would like a get lit sticker. Um, But we appreciate it and we love doing this. For sure. Yeah. So thank you again, as always, for keeping it lit.